Farm Food Facts, where every farmer, every acre, and every voice matter. Welcome to the Farm Food Facts interactive podcast presented by the U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance for Wednesday, June 12, 2019. I'm your host, Phil Lempert. This week's farmer is Jeremy Brown, Texas cotton farmer, who shares his insights and experiences on sustainable farming across a variety of crops. But first, food waste is a staggering problem. About 40% of food goes to landfills, and supermarkets dispose of hundreds of shopping carts of product each and every day, costing us a total of $161 billion every year. In addition, it creates methane gas and carbon dioxide. Two UC San Diego undergraduates have come up with a solution. And they won $10,000 as a prize for the Lemelson MIT concept. Enid Partika and Will Tanaka have invented the Bioenergy Project, a compact system that converts food waste from dining halls and restaurants into two environmentally responsible products, nutrient-rich organic fertilizer and biogas to create electricity and heat. Campuses and restaurants can grow their own vegetables, they can generate their own renewable energy, and do it all in-house. Enid and Will, welcome to Farm Food Facts. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So, Enid, I know you're about uh, ready to graduate uh, next year, about this time, uh, in environmental systems and environmental chemistry. Uh, What inspired you both to create the Bioenergy Project? We saw how much food waste uh, was just going into the landfill in the in our school dining hall, and um, we thought it was a really big problem. And um, we looked into a lot of different methods, and uh, we thought that an anaerobic digestion and composting system would be uh, the most efficient way to go for um, the scale that we were trying to reach. So, so talk to me for a moment about when you went to the head of you know the cafeteria and the food service. And you said, okay, I'm going to change your life. I'm going to change your world. Here's what we're going to do. What was the reaction from them? You know, a lot of restaurants were pretty receptive. Um, You know, before we came along, they were just having to throw out their food waste. And being in California, a lot of people do have, you know, food waste repurposing, environmentalism um, on their mind. And uh, they thought that um, if they had a chance for their business to become more sustainable, uh, they were very willing to take that. So, Will, your major is nanotechnology. Yes, yeah, correct. And and you're going to graduate in 2021. What was the biggest surprise that you had when you started talking to these food service folks? Yeah, I, yeah, I was actually pretty surprised that all these people would be, all the managers and all the even the staff would be very. They were all very on board with our program. They were super willing to cooperate with us and. And in turn, we were very enthusiastic to work with them. Took a lot of pride to really give them the best service that we could and, you know, work together to create this uh, great program that we have. So, Enid, was this your first collaboration with Will? First major collaboration. We first started working together in um, last summer, actually, um, really just building up the food waste collection program. Um, before that, uh, we were collecting from one or two restaurants, but it was really during the summer that we were able to really work together and be able to put food waste from over 15 restaurant locations into our composting and anaerobic digestion systems. And throughout the school year, we expanded to cover all of uh, Scripps Institution of Oceanography, as mm-hmm. well as uh, one of the dining halls. So 
where do you go from here with this? So when you both graduate, do you form a company and, and make this, you know, your lead product first of many, um, where you take the bioenergy project in different directions? Do you want to go national with it? Give me a look into your crystal ball here. We are going to definitely be interested in maybe establishing a company with this in the future. Um, we're finishing up our research and development phase right now, and we're hoping to be able to um, market some of our products um, either towards the end of this year or going into next year. And um, I also wanted to mention, too, that uh, Will is also working on um, mushroom cultivation from coffee grounds. And uh, we're going to be integrating that into our system, too, um, since, you know, UCSD gets mostly coffee grounds and tea leaves from, you know, they produce mostly coffee grounds and tea leaves. So we'll be, you know, trying to take as much of that waste stream as we can and use it for uh, the mushrooms. So, yeah, you can certainly tell me more about that. Yeah, we actually found that tea leaves and coffee grounds do uh, don't do so on the digester. They have too much stuff like lignin and cellulose in there that it's really hard for the bacteria in the digester to break it down. Um, and so fungi are great because they're actually one of the only organisms that can break down these compounds. And so after we've treated the waste with the mushroom and also extracted all the nutrients we can from it, we can then take the spent substrate, spent coffee, and then put that back in the digester. So this whole mushroom thing is kind of a part of this whole integrated food waste management and collection that we have going on. So last question, I'm assuming that you're going to split the 10 grand evenly. Uh, what are each of you going to do with it? Will, what are you going to do with your five grand? I'm either thinking of using it for tuition or maybe buy a car or something like that. Probably put it back to the, um, or put it most likely put something back to the project. And Enid, what about you? Um, I'm going to be using some of it to go to um, a couple of conferences that I'll be attending throughout the summer. Um, you know, I'll put some of it back to the project. Um, and yeah, after that, um, might put some of it towards maybe a, a car or, uh, you know, some other things. Life things. <laughs> yeah. Well, guys, congratulations on not only winning the prize, but really leading the industry to be able to design something like this, to be able to execute it, to have 15 restaurants, scripts, and so on. You've done an amazing job, and I look forward to staying in touch with you and being able to share all your successes right here on Farm Food Facts. Great, and thank you very much. We're yeah. very happy to uh, be able to participate. Uh, thank you very much. And now the news. Survey says buy local is unclear for shoppers. In a recent survey of over 20,000 shoppers, Nielsen discovered that the consumer's definition of the term local varies significantly depending on the product that is being labeled as such. Some folks consider a product local if it came from the same city, while others think food is local as long as it's produced here in the U.S. The categories where consumers agreed least about what local means include deli meats, deli cheeses, and seafood. One reason that consumers have such a different perception of what local means is likely due to the difficulty in tracking a product's origin in today's complex global food supply chain. According to the survey, 58% of consumers say that buying local produce is important, and grocers are taking note of this. The largest percentage of survey respondents across all categories said 
that an item should be grown or raised within 50 miles to be actually considered local. So essentially, without clearly defined parameters for local food sourcing and labeling, retailers and shoppers have been trying to figure out what is and what is not local on their own. This study provides helpful insights into how retailers can apply the consumer's perceptions into their practices. What grocers need to know is label it correctly. Grocers know that local has been a huge trend that has increased sales, but being genuine is critical. Label produce and other local products honestly and say right on the sign where it comes from. The farm, the city, and the state. Make the farmer your rock star and your shoppers will love it. And now that we've heard what consumers say, let's shift to sustainability at retail and how sustainability is changing grocery stores. With climate concerns at an all-time high, the topic of sustainability is at the forefront of many people's minds as it affects many aspects of our daily lives. For example, when we go grocery shopping, there are several choices we can make in an effort to minimize our environmental impact. But consumers aren't the only ones making changes in order to better our planet. Grocery stores are making significant adjustments to their supply chain and how they interact with consumers in order to have a smaller impact on the planet. However, in becoming more sustainable, grocery stores face an uphill battle as food waste is an ongoing issue. According to the USDA, food is the single largest component in landfills an estimation that approximately 31% of the food supply, both from restaurants and stores, is ending up in a landfill. Stores are also responsible for distributing plastic bags, and it's been estimated that, get this, 160,000 plastic bags are used every single second. Unfortunately, these bags, which are not easily recyclable, are estimated to also be used for only 12 minutes, yet they stay in our environment for thousands of years. So there's a great deal of pressure on grocery stores to change their ways, and many grocers have. They've made adjustments to ensure they're doing their part in eliminating their impact on the environment. There's nine examples of ways that various grocery stores are making an effort to eliminate or at least minimize their impact. Number one, eliminate plastic packaging. Number two, banning single-use grocery bags. Number three, selling discounted produce. Number four, making recycling easier. Five, introducing better sell-by dates. Six, embracing technology in order to make a change. Seven, shopping local to keep emissions down. Number eight, donating food to eliminate waste. And number nine, composting at the store level. What grocers need to know is add these nine steps to make your stores a bit greener and your shoppers will reward you. And before we hear from our cotton farmer, a significant increase in cotton plantings are projected. Although some cotton plantings got a slight late start this year, overall cotton acreage is expected to increase considerably. California cotton is coming off a strong year from 2018, sparking optimism within the industry for another good crop year. Roger Isom, the president and CEO of California Cotton Ginners and Growers Association, says, I can tell you, based on preliminary planting intentions back in January and what we're hearing from our growers and what we've seen so far, cotton acreage is going to be up. Right now, I'd say we're probably going to be close to, if not a little bit above, 300,000 acres, which would be a significant increase, maybe as much as 18 to 20 percent over last year. 
The annual early season planting intention survey that was released from the National Cotton Council back in February indicated a 14% increase in cotton acreage. According to ISOM, we're coming off our highest yield ever, maybe even the highest quality crop we've ever had. Last year was a fantastic year. Low insect pressure, high yields, and just an incredible fall for harvest. So our quality was there, a great year to grow cotton. What grocers need to know is that you can expect a lot more Made in USA cotton products this year, as a bigger crop means a greater supply and less reliance on imports. And now let's head to Texas to chat with Jeremy Brown, a Texas cotton farmer. Fifth-generation family farmer Jeremy farms with his wife Sarah and three children on their 3,000-acre farm on the South Plains of West Texas, growing both conventional and organic cotton, wheat, rye, grain, sorghum, peanuts, and sesame. Jeremy is committed to sustainable farming practices, including crop rotation, minimum tillage, and using cover crops. Jeremy, welcome to Farm Food Facts. Thank you, Phil. Glad to be here today. So what I find interesting is you've been in this for quite a while. You started farming at age 15 when your your family gave you 40 acres of land to manage yourself? Yes, that's correct. My uh, my dad made it very clear if I ever want to have a vehicle at age 16, I better get to work. So. <laughs> <laughs> I was highly motivated, Phil. I was highly motivated yeah. to get out there and work because I, I had my eye on a, a truck I wanted. So, so what was the first crop that you farmed? Cotton. Yeah, we uh, we had a little forty-acre track close to some land that my dad farmed that had a uh, irrigation system that you had to move in the morning and the evenings. And so, I'd go out there in the mornings and move it, and then as soon as school was out, go back out there, rode out there on my four-wheeler, and you know just do what I could to make a crop. But yeah, it was cotton. That's uh, pretty much our staple crop out here. So, so it was really just dangling the keys to that truck that you wanted. That, that's what got you into it. Yeah, yeah. And then Dad said, if you want to go to college, you better make some good crops. So I, I, uh, that, that that's what paid for my first vehicle in my first couple of years yeah. of college. So, in fact, I, I I want to talk a little bit about um, college. You went to Texas Tech University. You have a degree in ag communications, uh, but also I think coming from Texas Tech, you have a tendency to really involve technology in your farming. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, yeah, you know, as um, farming has changed so much, especially in the last 20 years, and uh, especially from when my dad farmed, my granddad farmed. And so really some of the biggest advancements that we've seen in, in production agriculture, I think, is in the use of technology. Uh, you know, it's no longer just cows and plows. I mean, we are using very high-tech, precise technology, whether that's guidance systems on our tractors to mobile devices that we use to control our center pivot irrigations. I mean, it just, it just amazes me that the things that are coming down the pipeline and, and what's about to come uh, that makes us be as uh, you know, precise as we can when we are, uh, you know, growing a crop and putting out inputs and chemicals and fertilizers. And so it, uh, to me, it, it's, it was, it makes us sustainable and profitable in the long run. Sure. So, you know, on the technology side, you can become more efficient. You can do all the things you've, you've talked about, but let's talk about mother nature. This has been a really tough year for farmers and ranchers across the country, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. I mean, you know, it seems like every year is tough, Phil. <laughs> it seems like, it, you know, we can't control that one aspect of production agriculture, and that's the weather. So, uh, you know, it, it has its challenges, and so you just, you know, you do what you can. But, yeah, this year, 
the good thing for where I farm, you're at, we're actually, uh, we've got more moisture than we normally do. And so, you know, we're, we're about, well, really we're right on the verge of putting seed in the ground. So really we're sitting very nice, uh, uh, really like where we're at. And so, you know, um, hopeful that this is going to be a good crop year without any bad weather, but you know, from a moisture standpoint, we're really looking good. So you grow both conventional and organic. So you, you see both pictures. Um, what, what do you think the future holds for farmers? Um, are more people going to be doing what you're doing, growing both conventional and organic, or do you see people really specializing in one or the other? Um, I think a lot of it's going to be driven by the consumer. I mean, you know, that's, that's really what got me into the organic market is, you know, I saw more and more uh, people wanting organic, uh, specifically in my area of organic cotton, you know, but it comes at paying a higher price. And so I don't know if that's one of those things that, that you, you really see people ever, you know, completely, everything's got to be organic. Um, mm-hmm. You know, now we're seeing this movement of regenerative agriculture and and i'm a big proponent of it but from an organic production practices it makes it a challenge to be completely regenerative because of weeds and the other things that you deal with so i you know i just think you know the consumers are more and more concerned about where their food and fiber come from and you know from a farmer's perspective I, you know i tell people i'm a business owner and so I was fortunate enough that in my business i could i could meet that niche market of, of those that are wanting organic but it's got its challenges too that I think people forget about um, that, you know, with, you know, we're now really seeing a movement to zero tillage, you know, or minimum tillage, but from an organic stand- practice when, you know, you're, you're completely reliable, your only source of weed management is tillage um, that really gets into the soil health debate of which one's better. And, you know, from a soil health perspective, you know, or maybe using a chemical when needed, but yet building, you know, organic matter and not tilling the soil. So I, I really see uh, from a different from a different viewpoint because I'm 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 farming both ways. Let's let's talk about your kids. How old are they? Yeah, I have a eight year old son and then a five year old daughter and a three year old daughter. So have you put them to work on the farm yet? Uh, my son, yeah, he uh, you know he he does what he can to. Right now, his 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 uh, favorite thing to do is is drive a pickup. And so, you know, if we're, if we're in a field and I'm walking to the end of a pivot, I'll let him move it down to the end of the pivot. And, you know, of course he thinks he's done something amazing and his mom freaks out, but he's done a good job. <laughs> so, so when he gets to be 15, you know, dangling the keys to a Corvette for him, you know? Uh, I don't know about Corvette, maybe one of the, maybe one of my employees' trucks that's been around the block a few times, but yeah, you know, it's a great lifestyle. I mean, that's why... I, one of the things I love about farming is, you know, my kids are out here working with me and, you know, if even if not working, just being with me and learning the, the value of hard work, learning the importance of stewarding the land and, and why we do the certain things that we do to take care of the land. And so, you know, I, I love that aspect of farming. Well, Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us. And thank you for being one of the U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance Faces of Farming and Ranching. Yeah, well, thanks, Phil. It's been an honor. For more information on all things food and agriculture and to listen to our archives, please visit fooddialogues.com under the Programs and Media tab and visit us on Facebook at U.S. Farmers and Ranchers or on Twitter at USFRA. Until next time.